Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Dr. Gary McGrath. He's the CEO of Citeris. He's a leadership development coach. He's got a marketing background. He's an experienced public speaker. He's written two books on leadership. And he's also a nationally ranked tennis player. Gary, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I always look forward to talking about leadership. I mean, that's my passion and, uh, and my life. So I look forward to it. Awesome. Before we dive into that topic, I know you're an avid tennis player. When, when did that all start for you? Well, actually, it started as a senior in high school when mm. I was also a soccer player. And I was a much better soccer player than tennis player. Okay. But for some reason, it just got in my blood. And it was a sport that I loved playing. I went out for the university college team after playing for one year. And uh, the coach had, you know, the top six were varsity, the second six were junior varsity. There were sure. three alternates. And then there was a group of others. I would <laughs> show up at the court. I was the others. I wasn't even on the list. Oh, and I'd show up, come on, coach, I want to play. I want to play. And he'd stick me in one of the back courts. And he would throw people at me every once in a while. I'd go, go, go back there and play with McGrath. He can't play. Wow. So my second year, I made junior varsity. My third year, I made varsity. And uh, I just fell in love with the sport. And all along the way, have learned the hard way. I've taken some lessons. I've had people help me. I always walk up to people and say, so how can I get better? Yeah. And listen and, and get this uh, free coaching. I, I'll tell you a quick story, Tad. I was playing yeah, yeah, yeah. the national clay courts three years ago, and I'm playing the number one player in the country. Yeah. And he had just come back from Europe. They had won the, nas- the uh, international team sport. Yeah. And I lost to him 6-1, 6-2. I was yeah. very excited. I won three games. Yeah, and I walked up to him afterwards and uh, I, I said, yeah, I really enjoyed playing with you. I learned a lot. I said, so Max, what do you think the one thing I could do yeah. to make my game better? Sure. And he said, you need to hit it down the middle more. You try to go too much for the corners. Mm. And I'm like, wow, I got to work on that. So I've been working on that for the last three years, you know, so I'll take advice from anybody and uh, try to learn from a lot of different people and you know, in our leadership programs, we talk about how important coaching is, how, you know, it's just the number one thing you can do in leadership. So I have to live what I, what I preach. Yeah. And I try to do well, that. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. I started fairly late too, but for you to kind of start so late, but achieve that a high level where you're playing nationally into uh, ranked players and events, that's, that takes a lot of focus. It does. And I think that the testament to the, the style of my life is that I like to take a few things and do it very, very well. And to do things that I, I love to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hit a thousand balls in a row on a tennis court and just love hitting the tennis ball, just the act of hitting the ball. And I don't have a lot of natural athletic talent. So I have to rely on the things that I do well, which is endurance and consistency and all those things. So you look at what you do well and you leverage that as opposed to trying to do things you don't do well and think you're ever going to get great at that. You're not. You mean that we should try to copy what Roger Federer does? So when Roger Federer was coming (laughs) up, I can remember 
the very first time I saw him play at Wimbledon. And he steps in and hits a backhand down the line passing shot yeah. in the air. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he, this guy hit it a little bit deeper than, and he hits this top spin backhand in, out of the air for a winner. I'm like, this guy is amazing. <laughs> And he just continues to prove it every day. Yeah, I don't have, I don't have that. No, I don't think none of us do. Now you started in the marketing area, and then you transitioned what it seems like into the leadership area. What facilitated that change? Well, we got to go back a little bit because it goes a lot sure. long before that. Actually, yeah. I started in leadership because as a Boy Scout, I had a ah. Boy Scout leader that demonstrated some incredible leadership, and I and I asked him, you know, what, what was that when he turned a troop around in a matter of minutes? Mm. And he said, well, Gary, that's leadership. And that word is something that has been attached to me my entire life. And I got really interested in it and went to school, got an engineering degree, had an Army ROTC scholarship. So I was in the Army. I was an Army captain and in command at 25 years old. So I learned a lot about leadership there and then uh, spent 10 years in manufacturing. But coming out of that, I wanted to do something different and really dive into it. So I started my first business that I could say I was not very successful at, but here's what I learned. Mm -hmm. I was working for the Covey Leadership Center and I was working for Blanchard Training and Development, training the seven habits, highly effective people in situational leadership. Yeah. And I remember saying to myself, I'm going to be training for these guys for the rest of my life unless I learn to develop my own program, get a terminal degree, write some books, and develop a business around my own stuff. Mm. And that started my journey down this path where I went back into business. I was in technology services at that point for about 10, 11, 12 years. I worked for Novell, a big technology company. And then I worked for small companies and software services, software companies. Finished my doctorate in marketing and started this company. And over the last five years, have honed the leadership program called Leader Step 7 that's based on the seven steps of intentional leadership. And I always kind of joke about it. I go, let me see, seven habits of highly <laughs> effective people, seven steps of intentional leadership. Sounds, sounds like it's got the same rhythm to it, right? <laughs> but that's what I learned with some of these challenges early on is I didn't want to just deliver and I was pretty good at it, but I wanted my own stuff. I wanted something that exuded from my own DNA. Mm. And I could, I could speak from with complete authenticity that this is what I think. Well, I get, let me give you an example right, sure. of, of why I did what I did. Because I said to people, Tad, if you wanted to develop your leadership skills, where would you start? What would you do? What was, what's the first thing that you would do to develop your leadership capabilities? Do you know what that would be? Well, I don't know. What would it be? Well, I get anything from, well, I've got to be a better communicator. And I'm like, that's a great skill to have. That's not where you start. Mm -hmm. Okay. So step one of my seven steps of intentional leadership is purpose. And mm -hmm. the first component is personal mission statement. Leadership development is an inside out process. So when I ask people where to start, I can tell you, I have never had anybody say to me specifically to write a personal mission statement occasionally people will say, well, I've got to start on the inside. And I'm like, that's exactly right. And how do you hold yourself accountable to who you're going to be every day and show up as a leader? I'll tell you how. You write a personal mission statement. You tag it up on the wall. You remind yourself every day because there's going to be days when it's going to be really hard. You're going to be really challenged. 
And you want to look at that mission statement and say to yourself, am I living my mission today? And if I'm living my mission, then you can show up as your authentic self and demonstrate to people the kind of leader that you are. And on those days that you make a mistake, and we all make them, we can with true sincerity say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. This is not the way I want to be. I'll be better next time. Mm. And that way, when you have that really, really bad day, you can look at your mission and you can say, you know, nothing went right today. The technology didn't work. Clients were yelling at me. In fact, I lost one client because of this pandemic we're going through and I lost a quarter of a million dollar contract. I can go at one thing right after the other, right? Yeah, yeah. My wife yelled at me. My dog bit me. I mean, I can, I can go through all of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And at the end of the day, I look at my mission statement. I say, did I live my mission today? Mm. And when I can say yes, that's a great day. Mm-hmm. That's where you start. Yes. Yeah. So how, I mean, I, I've gone through this process, creating a mission statement. I know it could be hard for some. How do you help facilitate that sort of that it's true? Not that something they read in a book, but it really is something that they're connected to. Well, that's, a, that's an awesome question because... And I'm glad you asked it because so many people think that a mission statement is to talk about what they want to do in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the wrong perspective because what you do is not who you are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you can do. What I say, people ask the question, how do I want to live? Mm. And how do I want to show up with the relationships I have in my life? If I can show up in those relationships in a positive way, consistent with who I am, no matter what, then what you do is irrelevant. And then you, then we go into finding your passion and finding your talents and trying to match those together. And if there's a market for it in this capitalistic society, you can make some money out of it. You can have an incredible career. But for most of us, that's not the case. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a really simple example. Sure. We just did, I have a Tuesday morning, uh, Life, Leadership, and the Pursuit of Happiness show that we started with this pandemic. It's a 30-minute show, and I get as many people online to talk about what keeps us grounded, what keeps us going, and how do we demonstrate in the mundane the love, the care, and the relationships that we have in our life. And one of, the, one of, one of my fellow Staterians, that's what I call uh, the Staterius gang, Staterians, he said, well, you know what? It kind of struck me that I asked myself, why am I washing the dishes? Mm. Well, I'm washing the dishes because I'm, I, I got to keep them clean. Well, why do I want to keep them clean? Because I don't want to be in a sink and end up with a bunch of bugs. Well, why do I want a, a bunch of bugs? Because I know if I do, it'll really bother my wife. And I don't want it to bother my wife. So why do I want it to bother my wife? Well, because I love her. So why am I really washing dishes? I'm washing it because I love my wife. You know, when you ask yourself why five times, four times, you can really get to the core of why you're doing the things that you're doing. Mm. So I think that that is the essence of how we want to live. Mm. And so when you dig into your mission statement, it has nothing to do with what he does every day in terms of his profession, in terms of all these big things, but all the little things add up to the person that you are, the authentic person that you are. And holding yourself to that accountability. And the other part that's really fascinating from a leadership standpoint, because we say leadership is a responsibility, not a position. The Staterian, uh, it was Bill, that shared this story. 
the following week, one of the guys came back and he said, you know, it made me think. And I realized I've got two daughters. My wife works full time and so do I. I could do a better job of contributing to the house and demonstrating love for my family by just washing the dishes. Mm -hmm. So he made a commitment to his wife. He called her up on the phone that day and said, you know what? You never have to wash the dishes again. I got this. I'm going to do this from now on. And he does it because he loves his family. Mm. How do you want to live? That's the question you want to answer when you're writing a personal mission statement. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say about you Mm. when you retire or when you pass away? Mm. And, you know, they're not going to, let's say you make $2 million in your lifetime, which is a lot for some people. You got it in the bank. Oh, Tad, he was an awesome guy. You get $2 million in the bank. That's not what they're going to say. Yeah. They're going to say that on this May day of 2020, he met this guy named Dr. Gary and decided, I'm going to commit to tennis again. And he became a world-class tennis player. We influence each other in so many ways that we want to take that responsibility of just being authentic self. And, you know, when we do that, Tat, we sometimes piss people off. (laughs) You know, they don't like it. And I'm old enough now to say, I don't care. Mm -hmm. What I care about is those people around me that I can influence, that I can talk to, that I can share. And that also, as we talk about in companies, it's IGYB. I've got your back. You've got my back. Mm. And that's that's the essence of life is this is how I want to show up. So long answer to a simple question. How do you help somebody write a mission statement? Stop writing down what you want to do and start writing how I want to live. Mm, I heard you just mention, uh, I got you back. I think I heard a, a few stories on that. I think uh, where that came from. Gary, you want to uh, sort of uh, dig into that a bit? Well, yeah, it came from my brother. Yeah. It came from my family in terms of the way we treated each other because my whole family is military. And when I say whole family, my four brothers, myself, my father, my son have 108 years of military service. Wow. And my mother was born on Veterans Day. So we say she had uh, 108 years of service. And (laughs) at 91, she's getting close to hitting that 108 years. So, But years ago, my brother came to work for me. And I can remember when I was driving, I'll make this story quick and short, but I was driving to the airport and I forgot that I'd left uh, wet clothes in the washing machine. I I texted him and, and I said, could you please, he lives right down the street from me. Could you please take the wet clothes and put them in the dryer for me? And he just sends back IGYB. And I'm like, in text, you know, you get these letters back, LOL, WTF, whatever it might be, okay? And I was like, IGYB, what the heck is that, right? So finally I asked him, he says, oh, I've got your back. And so that's a way that we have always responded to each other now for requests. We just say IGYB, I've got this, right? And it's something actually that we've started to bring into companies. Mm. See, we ask people, because here's, here's the, the, the analogy that I like to use for IGYB. You watch a professional football team and the running back drops the ball for the third time. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but what I've always seen mm-hmm. is everybody else still jumping on the ball. Mm-hmm. They have a common goal. They want to win the game. Winning, holding onto that ball, winning that game could lead to a championship. Yeah. Okay? Not winning that game, you could be out of it. So... There's a common goal. There's a common reason why, but there's more than that because these guys instinctually are trained to jump on the ball from the time they're five, six, seven years old. The coach 
drops the ball the first time they're on the field. A couple of kids jump on it. And the reason they jump on it is because their brothers played and they taught them to jump on the ball. And the other kids are standing around looking at it going, what are you guys doing? That's really funny. And the coach starts yelling at them, jump on the ball. So they're trained. And by the time they get to the NFL or college, it's been 20 years, 15 years, they've been jumping on the ball. It's instinctual. They do it automatically. They don't think about it. So I got to thinking in business, what does this look like? The third time the running back drops the ball in the game is their offensive line stands there and they cross their arms and they look, I'm not picking that up. That's the third time today. That's not my job. (laughs) You've got to be kidding. That's not my job. That's your job to hold on to the ball. What the hell's wrong with you? That's not what happens because the common goal is clear and they've been trained to respond instinctively. But in business, somebody drops the ball a few times Mm. and people leave it laying in the middle of the floor. Mm-hmm. nobody's got each other's back and maybe the reason we never know why the person dropped the ball mm-hmm. do you think that running back wanted to drop the ball for three times on purpose absolutely not <laughs> no then that's sitting there going oh let me drop it because uh, i want to piss off the rest of my teammates right that's not why they're doing it and in fact there's a famous story about tiki barber who new york mm-hmm. giant player mm-hmm. played in a couple of super bowls and everything he had a problem fumbling the ball mm-hmm. Finally, our coach watched many, many, many fumbles that he had and found out that he was holding the ball about three inches lower from his armpit than he should have been. He had to get the the end of the football up into his armpit. After he did that, he had the fewest fumbles in the NFL for like the next three or four years. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he he wasn't doing it on purpose. But there was this minor thing he was doing wrong that nobody was able to figure out. He couldn't even figure it out himself. It was a coach. Most people don't do things because they don't want to. It's because they don't know how to. They don't have the resources. They haven't been trained. They don't work well with the team, whatever it might be. But if we believe that people are doing the best they can with what they have at the time and go in with that attitude, and are there times when people can't do the work? Yes. Are there times when people have a bad attitude? Yes. And managers and leaders need to work on that. But if they have a bad attitude and they, they don't have the ability and will never have the ability, the manager can't do anything about that. Mm. The only thing they can do is if they have the capability to do it is to train them and then work with them to influence their motivation. But they can't, mm. they can't motivate them. They can only influence their motivation. Mm. And we often take too much responsibility or not enough responsibility as leaders thinking that we're going to control the situation. No, you're not. I I tell people all the time, you want to control the situation? All right. You got a two-year-old? Control that. (laughs) If you can't control a two-year-old, how are you going to do it with a 22-year-old? We got to look at it in a different way. Mm, Yeah. Well, what are are some of your other, you mentioned one of the uh, seven steps that you've identified, you know, in your process. What are the other, some of the other steps? Well, step one is purpose. Step two is, well, so I, and, and first of all, let me go through this. Step ones, two, three, and four are self-development. Mm. Four is the, is the crossover for team development, four, five, six, and seven. Okay. So we looked at it for uh, step one is purpose. Step two is choice. Mm. Step three is strengths, focusing on our strengths, not our limitations. We just like what I said to you in tennis, you focus on what you do well. Don't try to do things you can't do, right? 
step four is organized. It's I got to get myself organized and then help get my team organized. That's the crossover. All right. Step five is relationships. Something that uh, very few of us are taught mm-hmm. how to build relationships. And it's the biggest portion of leadership. Our, our leadership definition is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassionate accountability. Yeah, yeah. So how do you develop relationships? Well, the first thing you do, let's go back to step, step one. Have a personal mission statement so you know what you stand for, what's important. And when you can get there, you can put aside your ego a little bit and make the other person the center of attention mm. through listening, through understanding, through compassion, and through clarity in a business of expectations and goals so that they don't feel betrayed when you hold them accountable for something that never has been clear to them. Mm. All right. In the first place. And that's what happens. You know, it's like, Tad, why did you take care of this? You go, uh, because I didn't know I was supposed to take care of it. You know, but people don't like, they don't come right out and say that. A lot of times they go, yeah. uh, I, I, I'll take care of it. I'm sorry. And they feel beat on. And in your mind, you're sitting there thinking, I was never told to do that. Yeah. That affects morale. Or I wasn't told to do it that way. And we have to have a, a vulnerable enough relationship where our direct reports can say, if I was to say that to you and say, Tat, why didn't you do this? Because you never assigned it to me. And I go, oh, I didn't? Yeah, you know, I thought about assigning it last week and I didn't send that email. I forgot to hit send. So I take responsibility for it, right? Mm. Otherwise, and people say, well, what, if, what if you really did get it and didn't feel like doing it? Different problem. That's not about the relationship then. That's about the performance. Yeah. Okay. So relationships, we, we build in a lot of ways, but we actually have what we call the, uh, the three questions, the four affirmations and the five components of uh, relationship building. So each one of these steps has three components to it. Sure. And the one I, I'd like to share is the four A's, the four affirmations, because building a relationship, is a simple thing. The first thing is just to recognize who you are and just say, Hey, Tat, I acknowledge you. I acknowledge you with your name. Mm. Okay. My second A is appreciation. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for having me here today. This is really fun. This is great. The third is affection. And in business, we talk about this, but you can demonstrate affection through some kind, honest words. Mm-hmm. Or what we used to do is give high fives, yeah. pat somebody on the back. You do affection in an appropriate way, shake hands. Human beings need physical touch. Need, okay, don't want, need physical touch. It's a physiological need. And the fourth is acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's acceptance. It's a deep enough level of understanding of the other person where they feel that you have accepted them for who they are. All right? Mm. So just acknowledgement, appreciation, affection, and acceptance. Those are the four A's that we apply in leadership and management every single day and remind ourselves of these small steps to build these relationships. So you've worked with some great companies and and roofing and and other contracting businesses. Can you explain some of those relationships and and things you've you've done there? Yeah, well, yeah, I've had some long relationships with these companies, 12 years with Baker Roofing, seven years with Precision Walls, I work with Barnhill Contracting off and on, their general contractor. And I, I wanted to use this one example for this because a lot of contractors might say, compassion, accountability, really not in the field, dude. 
<laughs> and I'll say, you don't understand what I mean by compassion and accountability. I was an army officer. You're at war. You have no less compassion for the people than you could possibly have been under fire. Mm-hmm. You care about each other. You love each other. You take care of each other. You've got each other's back and you're going to accomplish the mission. In, in contracting, people will say, well, you got to be tough on people sometimes. Okay, I don't disagree with that. But you don't have to be abusive. And I can remember Bob Barnhill, as when I worked with him several times, he would stand in front of the project managers and he would tell them, now this is a company that has 65 project managers he's talking to in their annual meeting. So I want to give you, be very clear on how we respect people in the field. I don't want you yelling and swearing at people. If you do, that's a performance problem that may, may affect your employment here. And he, he's trying to change the way we communicate with people. Because I can, with high levels of accountability, manage people out of the organization without ever yelling at them, mm-hmm. getting very clear. Do they get frustrated sometimes and maybe yell at somebody? They're outdoors and they're trying to do something. It's kind of like the football coach. Yeah, but you can do that without ripping the person down. Yeah. You can show them that you're angry, you're upset, you're frustrated. And then you can go back later and say, you know, I was really frustrated there. I know I lost it for a minute. Now, let me work with you to try to fix this problem. Mm. Okay. And when you demonstrate that vulnerability with people and that I didn't handle that very well, I'll do better in the future. But man, you've got you've to step up too. You need to do your job. You need to do... There's a combination in the relationship that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. But it's the leader that has the responsibility to demonstrate the most effective behavior in that relationship first. Otherwise, get the hell out of the position. Mm. All right. If you can't do that more than you than not, then you shouldn't be in the position. In fact, I gotta tell you this, you didn't ask me what I do. Ask me what I do, Tab. What do you do? Well, that's a great question, Ted. You've had a bad <laughs> boss. You had a bad boss? Yeah. Yeah. Most people have. Okay. I get rid of them. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, our mission is to make good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And uh, we take bad bosses and try to make them into good bosses because most bad bosses aren't bad because they want to be. They're bad because they don't know how to be good. They've never been trained and developed. Mm. And we always say we don't, we don't train leaders. We develop leaders. Okay. Well, assuming someone doesn't want to be a bad boss, what are the signs, right? Just for self-awareness sake for these people that they may be a bad boss? Like what are the outward signs they should be looking at? Yeah, so I think that it's, first of all, it starts with feelings, okay? It, uh, step two under choice, the very first component of step two under choice is emotional intelligence. And if people don't know what that is and they're a boss, that's the first thing they should look into after they write their personal mission statement to understand where their emotional intelligence is because assessing that and understand how to improve it with the right mindset is going to make a significant impact on their ability to be a leader. So what is it? to answer your question, it's this. Are you having a lot of emotional upsets? Do you feel mm. frustrated a lot? Mm. Do people trigger you a lot? Mm. We do a lot of work with business leaders on triggering. One of my favorites, you know, people will say, I'm fine till somebody says I can't. Mm. Can't? And off they go. It's a trigger, okay? A trigger is the third time I tell somebody how to do something, they're, not, they're still doing it wrong. It's a trigger. And then they start to judge the person. 
these idiots, they can't get it right the first time, you know, and they start talking to themselves. The stories going on in my head is what creates the emotional response based on the perception of the situation. We teach people how to overcome that. If you're not aware enough to understand what's going on with that, there's a very good chance that your instinctual response to things is not going to be effective in a lot of situations. Mm. You want to find out if you're a good or a bad boss? Ask your followers. Mm. And if they won't tell you, I can tell you what you are. (laughs) Because there's not enough openness and vulnerability for them to say, yeah, how am I doing? What, What can I do better? A good boss, they'll go, ha, oh, let me tell you, Gary, they just lay it out to me, right? And I used to do this. I would get feedback from my team and they would just lay it out. Like, Holy crap, man, I got a lot of work to do, right? But the only, the greatest really feedback mechanism on a leader's capabilities is by the people that they're leading. Mm-hmm. It's not from their peers. It's not from the boss. It's from their followers. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we do hardly anything to get feedback about people's leadership capabilities from the followers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some companies are starting to do this. Mm -hmm. You want to determine who to promote? Yeah. The team should decide. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the team should decide. 85% of the time, according to the Gallup group, we pick the wrong person to promote. Mm -hmm. 85% of the time. Interesting. So do you like numbers? I do. Oh, you're going to love this. Okay, so listen (laughs) to this. This is great. I have the formula that can double your success, double it right now Okay. on picking the right leader. Sure. Okay. Statistics say that 30% of your people on average could be good or great leaders. Okay. 30%. They have the capability to be a manager, supervisor, leader. Okay. 30%. Got that number, right? I got it. I just said that the Gallup group, actually, the number exactly is 84% of the time they picked the wrong leader to promote. Oh, wow. Yeah. That means they get it right 16% of the time, 16%. All right. So if you have a team of 10 people, take the names, put it in a hat, pull a name out, make them the leader. And you've just doubled your probability of picking the right person because you have a 30% chance of all those 10 people being a good or a great leader. You've only got 16% under present systems. You just doubled your, your probabilities. I see. So when you pick someone, if you're bad at it, you just, you make sure it's not one of your choices, right? Now. That's right. my choices. You flip the script and say, okay, select from these guys. It's got to be one of the other nine. I forget it. It's, it's not this one. Everybody agrees that it's Tat. Yes. Okay. Don't promote him. Okay. But there's, there's better ways. And I've, I've uh, actually been involved in this selection process with our leadership programs that have been asked by the presidents of companies that go through our leadership programs. We have, in the last five years, almost 50 or 60% of the people, mm-hmm. and it might be higher than that by now, have been promoted Yeah, because they've been trained, they've, they've demonstrated leadership capabilities. I've actually had them call me and say, look, I've got this guy and I've got this guy. They're both in your program. Which one should I promote? Yeah. And I said, well, tell me what your thinking is. Well, this guy, he's got more operational experience. They go down all the experience stuff. This guy's more business development. And blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. I said, we do a assessment on judgment index, which is a cognitive decision-making capability and emotional intelligence. I take a look at those two factors. And in this particular case, we had this one case, I picked the guy different than they were going to promote. And he goes, why? And I says, his emotional intelligence is higher. His judgment capabilities is about the same. 
He's demonstrated ability to build relationships better than the other guy. And there were some other reasons that I won't go into, but that was it. Yeah. He's been the branch manager now for five years and doing remarkably. Wow. There's a better way to assess people's capabilities to be leaders. And sometimes it's, it's interesting. I was watching this tell, this is kind of a crazy idea, but I was watching this television show called Suits and they were going to, they were going to fire this one lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. And once they, they looked at what he was doing, every single person around him was doing better than everybody else, even though he wasn't doing great. Sure. Because he was helping everybody else. He was making everybody else better. Mm. He wasn't a great lawyer. He just happened to be a great leader. Mm. When they stopped looking at just what he did as a lawyer, they realized they needed to promote him into a leadership position. Mm. Because what makes you great as a lawyer, as a salesperson, as a technician, completely different skills. We talk about this all the time, and yet we continue to promote the best technologist, the best salesperson, the best lawyer, the best doctor. Wrong. Mm. They don't make the best leader. In fact, if they're mediocre in those areas, they're probably a better leader. (laughs) They had to work at it. (laughs) They had to struggle with the people side of it. Doctors had to be better with their bedside manners so people didn't sue them because they screwed up the surgery. Look, I'm a nice guy. Don't sue me. So they don't. (laughs) I mean, there's a better way. Very cool. So Gary, is there anything that I, that I didn't ask you, but should have? It's always a, it's always a tough question. I'll tell you what, in both my mission statement and in my definition of leadership, we have what we call compassionate accountability. And this is my challenge to everybody. Sure. Okay. Why do we focus on that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, I want to, for all the parents that are out there, they know exactly what I mean because they call it tough love. Mm. All right. Same thing. Compassion and accountability. Most people think of this as an either or proposition. I have to be either compassionate or accountable. Mm-hmm. In any given event or situation, I have to be either or. And that's just the wrong mindsets, the wrong thinking. The ability to balance both of them appropriately when the right amount in the situation is the foundational aspect of great leadership. Knowing when to back off when to give somebody a break, when to hold them accountable to the bottom line, whatever it might be. You know, and there's, there's so many stories on this. It's, uh, you know, it's amazing. A quick story, uh, Vince Lombardi, again, great football player or yeah. uh, coach, right? The first year he took over the Green Bay Packers, Paul Horning was his, his playboy running back. And back then he said, uh, he came in late after curfew. He had set this curfew. And back then it was $250 fine. That was a lot of money, right? Finds him 250 does it again the next night. 500 does it again the next night says paul you know you're you're killing me here that's a thousand dollars and i gotta tell you something if you go out again tomorrow night and it costs you two thousand dollars i'm gonna keep doubling it take me with you because it's gotta it's gotta be that good so i i want to go with you (laughs) so it was just using humor but still holding them accountable and letting them know man if if it's that good that you're still spending all this money i want to go with you it's little things like that that great leaders are able to kind of balance the two. And in fact, research shows that the nice guy, Mm non-accountable person, all compassion, no accountability, or the high accountability drill sergeant, my way or the highway, make sure we get it done. The leadership effect and the management effectiveness of those two is 12 to 14%. Mm. There's no statistical difference in the approach. 
to be either nice or be highly accountable. Yeah. But when you do both, 74% effective. Mm. You increase your effectiveness sixfold wow. by being both in the right situation. Now, are there times when you're going to be highly accountable and tough? Yeah, just like Vince Lombardi was. He was tough the first two times. The third time, he still held him accountable. But then there was a little compassion there that says, look, dude, I, I want to be with you here. We're part of a team. And I can, there's so many examples of this in my own leadership career. I'm sure you've seen it when people just deftly are able to read the situation and apply it. But compassion and accountability is not an event. It's a leadership process. That's why it's part of the definition. You balance those off and on every single day to build relationships so people trust you. And that's at the core of all of it. It's being able to have trust with each other. Very good. Yeah. So that's great. Understanding your purpose, being a compassionate uh, leader that holds people accountable and think long-term and work on your craft, right? So very, very good points, Gary. Uh, I had fun talking to you. So that was great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tad. It's been a it's been a great great few minutes to talk, and you know if you got six or seven more hours sometime, let's do it. I love I love this stuff. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also, want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone. Anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.